Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. Joining us now, a gentleman, and we spoke to his entourage, and they said, John, that we could not speak about Netherlands women's soccer. Why not? I just, we just couldn't speak about it. Willem's a good sport. You know, he'll, he'll talk about that. He'll accept the loss. It, it was a loss. Willem Bouter with a city special economic advisor. Good Did morning you watch? to you, Willem. Yes. It's exciting to see the women finally really getting some serious it was traction. A, um, a really amazing event. Yes. Is this your first time in radio? Would you pull here? I'm going to stand up, folks, and pull in so we can get Willem Bouter. I'm over here. Are you there. the tech guy now? I'm the tech guy. You're now. the tech guy now. Is Willem yeah, close enough to the mic? Yeah. Willem, let's talk about this slowdown globally. It's been going on for, I don't know, 12 months and change in Europe for quite a while. ECB President Mario Draghi said at the turn of the middle of last year that the slowdown would be temporary. It hasn't been. A number of months ago, Chairman Powell said that below target inflation was transient, that inflation would come back towards target over time as the year grew older. Um, he's come around to a different point of view. What do you make of the change in tone of these central banks who thought what we're experiencing was temporary. Are they late to the party here? Somewhat, yes. Uh, they've clearly, almost that exception now, uh, come to the conclusion that the economy needs additional support from the policymakers, and they're about to give it. Uh, both the ECB and the Fed will uh, cut rates uh, the next time of asking. And... Um, I think this is born out of the conviction that without that, uh, we are at material risk of a further slowdown uh, or even a growth recession. Do you yes. share that conviction? Um, it's, not a, it's not a crazy uh, <laughs> view. I myself think there's probably more strength both in the European economies and in the underlying US economies, uh, domestic demand that is, than... Uh, uh, they're given credit for. The external environment, mainly trade-related, is indeed unfavorable. So if you wanted to hedge your bets, uh, I think yeah, a sort of insurance-type preventive cut might make sense. The theory that underlies all this, you go over to Frankfurt, you walk in with your heritage of Cambridge and Yale and the rest of it, and there's a new president of the European Central Bank who leans over and charmingly says, Willem, what's our theory? What's the theory right now after 10 years of dealing with this financial crisis? Our theory is that we still have to clean up the banking system. Clear the banking system. Uh, properly in Why, Europe. Where did this come from? Why can't we do this like our forefathers did? I don't know what our forefathers did, but certainly our... Our contemporaries have failed uh, in Europe, especially, to clean up uh, the banking system properly after the great financial crisis. Uh, just, it was done in the US to a much greater extent, but not in Europe. And they're paying the price for it, I think, because so much of financial intermediation goes through the banking system. So if that is still under a shadow that makes uh, natural recovery mechanisms uh, less buoyant. Less should, should any bank be buying corporate paper or even equity shares 
in a manipulative way to get to the next meeting. The Japanese have bought all sorts of stuff and brought it in within their quantitative plans. What's Europe going to buy, John? I they're don't know gonna, what they're, they're going to buy they're next. Buy if, they, Juventus. If, they, if they restart QE, it may well be a lot more corporate debt. Corporate debt by Juventus may, equity? Maybe they venture into equity. They buy, I don't know about Juventus. Team I don't know if they start buying football team equities. <laughs> okay. But at this yeah, point, I wouldn't could, rule anything out. They could buy ETFs. Uh, I mean, like the Japanese. As long as it doesn't move, they can buy it. As, but that's the key point. It's going to move. We all know that. <laughs> like, it, you said it precisely right. I think that was a joke, Tom. No, it's like Libra, LIBOR. Do you like my opening? <laughs> you want, you want to go there? I, you I saw say that. Libra. Let's call the whole I thing off. Let's call the whole thing I, I like a good sing song from good? you, Tom. That was yeah. beautiful. Francine Give was us dazzled. more, please. They put auto tune on it, so I'd really. You've got Bouncer next to you, and you want to sing? No, but it's like, it's like Libra, LIBOR. We've got all this newfangled stuff going on, and we can't clear our banking system, can we? Yeah, it seems a bit premature to start thinking <clears> of a completely new banking system, <laughs> Libra based. And we're still trying to clean up the mess with the old banking system. I mean, Facebook's making all the, the usual things, and I know crypto's being studied. I know, of course, Citigroup's looking at it. Uh, and, and, well, it just comes down to the idea of stability with money market funds. That was, in general, a successful experiment. Do you see any of this modern coinage being stable enough? I mean, we won't know, and it will undoubtedly be very heavily regulated if it ever gets off the ground completely. Uh, it will be treated yeah. as banking and it will be regulated yeah. as banking, and it should be. So yeah. I if you should view this not as something revolutionary. I view this as an incremental uh, <coughs> addition to uh, finance intermediation. Willem Bader, thank you so much. Thanks, Willem. Good to see you. To Citigroup. I've been really looking forward to this conversation. Jane Foley with Rabobank piecing together what we glean from foreign exchange, looking to get the other asset classes. If I look, Jane Foley, at the good mathematics of BBDXY, the Bloomberg Dollar Index, I'm range-bound back to May of last year. I'm certainly range-bound back to October of last year. Which way do we break out of the range? Oh, well, that's a very good question. And, you know, it's, I think there's quite a risk that we'll stay fairly range-bound uh, for, the, for the next couple of months. Is that a but bad thing? Looking at, well, not necessarily. Certainly not if you're a corporate and you have foreign exchange exposure. Certainly not a bad thing at all. But um, one thing that's really quite noteworthy, I think, in, in this time frame that you've been talking about is, is the market has, has got this wrong. The market has, has generally expected the euro to be stronger than it has been and, and the dollar to, to be weaker than it has been. And, and I think given yeah. the, this, the expectations with respect to, to the Fed, um, there's a lot of people out there who've been confused that the dollar is just not weaker, uh, considering that the market is... Well, you've been right on that, haven't you? I've been lucky on that one, Tom, yes. And, and, and I think, yeah. you know, there's a couple of things here. And, and that is partly because, of course, it's not just about the Fed's easing cycle. This is also about the ECB's easing cycle and, and the, the dovishness of the ECB, particularly draggy um, over the, the course of the last few months. But there's another element to here, too. And, and trying to work out where euro dollar is going to go in the, in, in the future, we can't isolate the outlook for the dollar, I don't think, from the picture for emerging markets. Because if emerging markets are looking good, if people are moving into them, if there's confidence, 
confidence is high, the dollar is likely to soften. But but actually, if the if the reverse is true, then then the dollar could hold a little bit firmer, maybe than than people are anticipating. Jen, there's just this view that it's inevitable that rate differentials between Europe and the United States will narrow and it'll be in the euro's favour and the dollar has to weaken because rate differentials have to reassert themselves. Do you push back against that then, Jane? Well, again, yes or no. I mean, over in a in 12-month view, we do think that the dollar will be weaker against the euro, but probably not as much as the market consensus. I think our 12-month view is, is 115. But I think in the, in the shorter term, in the one to three month view, maybe the six month view, you've got to balance the argument against what is priced in. And I think right now the market might have priced in perhaps a risk of too much uh, Fed easing in that sort of time horizon, three or six months, relative to, to the to, to the euros. And we do think that the ECB could cut its discount rate in September. We do think that the, the ECB can maintain this very dovish um, rhetoric going forward. So again, it's not just what is going to happen, but what is going to happen compared with what is actually priced in right now. Got to explore the tail risk as well, Jane. Increasingly more and more conversations about the prospect of intervention here in the United States. Goldman Sachs saying it's a low but rising risk. How is Rabobank framing that right now, Jane? Well, it's similar. It would be highly unusual without, um, you know, I don't think many people would argue against that, but the the Trump administration, well, you know, Trump is very difficult to predict, and given that he's very difficult to predict, I think it would be foolhardy to say it, it's not going to happen. Yeah. Of course, we've got to remember that it is the Treasury and not the the central bank in the U.S. which is responsible for dollar policy. So, from from that point mm-hmm. of view, I wouldn't want to rule it out completely. Jane, John, and I got to make a lot of money fast. We got to go see Juventus in Tot in the Tottenham Spurs in Singapore like in two weeks, where's the trade right now? I mean, you talked about corporate, you know, rob a bank and representing corporations and the transactions. Where's the speculation right now in foreign exchange? Well, you know, I think the speculation, again, is, is with emerging markets. Um, is the speculation okay. that, yeah, there's going to be more trade negotiations, that's a good thing, and therefore uh, we've got cheap money and that the money moves into EM. And that's certainly a, a popular <clears throat> trade or a popular way of thinking right now. But there are lots of buts to that. Uh, and it is our view that actually uh, maybe in a 3, 6, 12-month horizon, you're going to see a worsening perhaps in the relationship between uh, the, the U.S. And, and, and China. There's room for an escalation because... There's a lot of talk about containment of China from the U.S. in terms of China's growth as a as a economic power and also as a military power. So if if that um, maintains, there is a possibility that actually risk appetite could worsen over a, a three twelve month horizon, and and that could actually lead money moving well out of emerging markets. So I, I think the the answer to your question has to be balanced with what sort of time horizon are we looking at? Because in the, in the near term. Yeah, you might see value in, in some of the high yielders, but actually you ought to be very, very careful um, if you're looking at a, a medium or a longer term. So, Jane, I'd love to know what you'd be fading right now. In the last month alone in EMFX, the South African rand is up more than 6% against the US dollar. We've had a 6 percentage point move yeah. in the favour of the rand. Had a decent move in the Argentine peso. Brazilian currency as well doing pretty decently over the last month too. If you had to fade something, Jane, right now, a move that you're uncomfortable with, which one is it? 
Well, you know, the South African rand is there because it's got more liquidity than most emerging markets. So it's the obvious trade if you if you just want to get some exposure. So in a way, that one therefore could be quite uh, vulnerable. But I think more than that, it's the Turkish it's the Turkish lira. Uh, that one probably hasn't fallen more uh, this week because of expectations of Fed easing, because of this demand for this drive for, for yield. I think if the market became nervous of uh, um, emerging markets, I think the Turkish lira could be really quite uh, vulnerable. And I think the the steps that we, we saw last weekend by the president really re- removing uh, the central bank um, governor um, because he was not enough of a yes man <clears throat> is yeah. sending up big warning signals. So that one, I, I think, is, is likely to be very vulnerable. What's so valuable about speaking to Ms. Foley, folks, is you heard there within one interview the two very different sides of use of foreign exchange and finance. And that is where they represent corporations doing hedging and conservative transactions to protect protect revenue and mar- and profit and then the speculation side at the back end of the interview jane foley thank you jane thank that you that was just a huge clinic i just put out on twitter that it is simply the single most important labor report on America in 15 years. It is an act of God. McKinsey Partners, McKinsey Global Institute, and there's Susan Lunn with an absolute tour de force for ourselves, our parents, and particularly for our children. Susan, congratulations on just an absolute stunning look at the dynamics of our labor population. What's a single thing you and your team learn uh, piling into all this wonderful analysis? Well, thanks for having me. So look, I think there are two big findings. One is that as we look forward to the age of automation, we see that job creation could widen the geographic inequality that we already see emerging across the country with some areas doing really well and lots of other places treading water or falling behind. And the second big finding, as you alluded to, is Look, automation is going to affect all of us in different ways, but one of the most concerning impacts could be on the loss of entry-level jobs for young people. Uh, And we find they're the single biggest group that could be affected over the next 10 years. What is the social policy that can amend this immense polarity and growing polarity? Well, I think it's two things. One is clearly uh, people are going to need different skills to have jobs. Yeah, but we've known that for 50 years. Exactly. But what's happening now is I think that the pace and scale of change is different. And that's why you saw an Amazon announcement earlier this week. Yes, with yes. This massive program that affects everyone from their computer engineers who are now going to be learning machine learning to workers right. in the fulfillment center. Before I get to the urban dynamics, what's the new blue collar? I mean, we grew up with a reverence, whether we were fancy white collar, full disclosure folks, that's where I was, or blue collar, whatever. We grew up with a reverence for blue collar American. America. Where's the new blue collar? Well, it's going to be in different places. There are a lot of healthcare jobs that require some skills but are very accessible to all. There will still be jobs in manufacturing. 
um, but they are going to require a degree in mechatronics or or being able to use the software that runs the robotics. Uh, there will be jobs in warehouses and Amazon fulfillment centers. There's going to be a lot of IT data analyst jobs. It's one of the career paths Amazon's trying to now create, taking people from their fulfillment yeah. warehouses into IT. So there are jobs, right. but we're going to have to adapt. Everybody listening, and we welcome all of you across the nation and worldwide, particularly in Sirius XM. We're all in different geographies, and I get the mail coming in, Susan, of the primal scream of smaller cities. They're not all Austin, Texas. What do the geographies do that aren't Nashville, that aren't Austin, that aren't Portland, Oregon? What do they do? Well, they're it's really a matter of new thinking about economic development strategies. And there are cities across this country that have turned themselves around, but it requires local action by business, by mayors, to think about what do they have to offer. You can look at Duluth, Minnesota, Akron, Ohio, Reno, Nevada. There are success stories, but it requires effort. It doesn't just happen, okay. you know. Naturally. Well, I'm going to go to Akron, Ohio. Tim Ryan of Youngstown was just on presidential candidate. What's the pixie dust in Akron, Ohio that pulled them out of the train wreck of the 70s and the 80s? Yeah, well, they have. They were historically a rubber man, tire yeah, manufacturing yeah, center. Yeah, Firestone, all that. Right. Exactly. Goodyear. <clears throat> so they have built up their polymers and plastics business, which is building on that historic foundation, but it's the 21st century yeah. version. And now they've got hundreds of companies doing that. And look, it, the city still has problems. The region still has a long way to go. But as you said, you know, right. they were climbing out of the the cellar. Maybe there. you didn't have this. And folks, this is Susan Lundman. McKinsey Global Partners, I can't say enough, as McKinsey Global Institute, I can't say enough about this important report on the future of America. You did that bang-up report, Susan, like five years ago in India, where I, I think you literally reinvented the emerging market dialogue, and now you're finally doing it for the U.S., uh, which is great. We all want our kids to get full-time benefited jobs. Are they dead? They're not dead, but... Kids are going to have to be ready to hit the ground running. So what we find is that there are almost 15 million entry-level jobs currently held by young workers under the age of 34. And some of those are things like retail cashier and salesperson or fast food or hotel receptionist. And those are important jobs that give people an entry into the labor force, teach soft skills, and those are going away. So that means... You know, we're going to have to think about new ways for young people to learn those soft skills that employers say are lacking. How do we fund schools? I mean, take it to public policy. How do we re-incentivize things like school system or the failure of the American pension system? I mean, these are bigger, broader topics. None of this is going to happen in Washington, given the polarity. So what's a policy recommendation of McKinsey? Well, I can... Local? Yeah, it's going to, and, and this is where, look, I can be optimistic. We see uh, companies working with local educators across the country. So there's uh, the IBM started this um, six year program for high school students called P Tech, right, where kids learn, earn a four year high school degree plus a two year associate's degree. That's now spreading across Texas. So there are lots of examples of companies working with right. local community colleges and high schools. Yeah to change the dynamic. And you're right that 
this isn't going to necessarily come from Washington, but there's a lot of bright spots. Yeah. Now we just need to scale those things up. Well, folks, what's so great about this is it's adult. I mean, they've got really, really fancy adult charts. There's no XYZ <laughs> three-dimensional stuff. It's a summer anyways. Susan, you've got a chart. I think I'm in the executive summary. Susan, you've got to make the font bigger. I can't read this. Tell me, Nika, I'm blind. Okay, page 11, okay? It's a scatterdot chart of my audience. And it ain't pretty for one quarter of them. And, you know, I get it, folks. It's the president's audience. Um, where's, the, where's the surveillance magnifying glass, Colin? I mean, can you find this home? Great. McDowell County, West Virginia. Clay County, Indiana. And over on a good side, Arlington, Virginia, and New York County, New York. The polarity is immense, isn't it? It is immense. And... We're going to have to really address this because there are large parts of the country where the population is older, they're less educated, they don't have that industry that's the job creation engine for the local economy, and we need to change that. Thank you. This has been great. McKinsey Global Institute, Susan Lund, the future of work in America. Susan, I hate you. It's 124 pages long. What is that about? I'm seriously going to have to read it all. It is absolutely superb. It codifies all of the, the blather you hear, Republican and Democrat. It actually codifies the data behind some of that emotion. I can't say enough about it. China very much in focus, not just because we are uh, looking at the ongoing trade skirmish between the U.S. and China, but also we got trade data overnight, which showed that trade is slowing on both sides, that imports are slowing uh, more than exports. Joining us now to talk about what that could mean for the GDP report we're going to get over the weekend is Kelsey Broderick. She's Eurasia Group China analyst. Kelsey, thank you so much for being with us. So let's start with that. What are you expecting for the GDP number uh, that we're going to get over the weekend and what it might mean for China's uh, growth? Well, certainly a lot of the latest data is not particularly good in that regard. The GDP numbers for China have been somewhat mixed this year, and we are expecting them to continue to suffer somewhat from the trade tension. But now it seems that China has reached something of a little bit of a status quo with the U.S. on the trade negotiations. And so the GDP numbers, unless they're incredibly lower than China expects, it seems like they won't make a huge difference in how China is thinking about the trade negotiations going forward. One thing that I'm struggling to understand is the amount of stimulus that China is injecting into its economy right now, sort of reversing its whole deleveraging push. I mean, how much is that already bolstering the economy versus uh, going to bolster it down the line and that these official data won't really capture that? Well, it really kind of depends. China's in sort of a tough spot right now. They would like to continue deleveraging, and there's a lot of pressure on private enterprise and support for private enterprise, but really they have introduced stimulus to kind of curb some of the fallout from the trade war. They probably won't go as far as they have gone in the past to really use that as a major boost to GDP simply because deleveraging is so important right now. It's quite a fine line that Beijing has to walk right now, and we'll see them continue to play with more stimulus, but not so much stimulus as to really reduce their policy proposals. But it's going to be a challenge for sure. So, Kelsey, here's what I'm really struggling with also. What does the U.S. want? 
I mean, honestly, especially at a time when we have now uh, potential arms sales to Taiwan, uh, we have saber rattling from President Trump on uh, Twitter. What is the U.S. looking for at this point? The U.S. camp really is, you can kind of divide it into two. And you have the trade negotiators, you have Lighthizer, and what they really want is structural change, right? They want to address some of these long-standing issues with China's economy. That's slightly different from what Trump wants. And while Trump really supports his trade negotiators, he is very interested in things like agricultural purchases. And that's where this trade data is really important because you don't see China following through on this commitment to buy more ag after the G20. And that's what Trump cares about is these farmers. On geopolitical issues, those have been sort of floating around in the background somewhat. And with this new news that Taiwan or that China is going to be sanctioning U.S. companies over the arms sale to Taiwan, that kind of brings some of these geopolitical issues yeah. into this trade realm in a way that's well, you know, quite quite nervous for the U.S. Let's reframe it, Kelsey. The distance from Taiwan to China is a distance not to Philadelphia, but to go to the Seven Sisters to Bryn Mawr or Swarthmore. I mean, you know, I mean, like Taiwan and China, they're right next door. How next door are they this morning? I mean, after these announcements, what what is the new tension there? Are we are we back to 50s and 60s tension? So it's quite interesting. So indefinitely since the 50s and 60s, China's military strength vis-a-vis Taiwan and even vis-a-vis the U.S. around Taiwan has increased dramatically. Yeah. What China's really trying to do now is put pressure on the U.S. And, the, and Taiwan to stop seeing their relationship, which has been going pretty far under Trump. So it's not really a question necessarily of the content of this arms sale. China's not really worried that this is going to bolster Taiwan significantly in a military right. situation. What it is here really is a warning, right? And so previously, China has warned the U.S. over this. In 2010 and 2015, they threatened to sanction U.S. companies. They haven't gone through with it. But now you have a situation where really the U.S. and China relationship has gotten much worse over the trade tension. And there are so many tariffs out there that it probably provides something well, of a buffer. And China know, says, okay, now's the time. I don't want you to get in trouble with Ian Bremmer, but are we going to have ships in the strait over the weekend? I mean, if this was the 50s or 60s, this would be the number one story in the world. And my question, I guess, is it's not now, is it? Even though the strait's still 110 miles, 110 miles wide. It's not. And interestingly, part of that is that China really right now sees kind of a tension here with Taiwan because Taiwan's going to have an election in January 2020. And the more pro-China Cam Tea Party is polling very well. And China in the past, when it has tried to influence Taiwan elections through military action, it hasn't gone well. And the anti-China DPP party has actually been strengthened. And we've seen that with Tsai Ing-wen, the current president. Her poll numbers have gone way up every time that China talks about one country, two systems for Taiwan. So China doesn't really want to do anything necessarily that's going to interfere in the election. They want the KMT to win. And they don't want Taiwan voters to you know, turn against the KMT because of this action. So I think that's a little bit why China has turned toward the U.S. in this instance. Because it's in some ways, sort of ironically, a little bit safer in terms of the Taiwan Strait. So going forward, uh, what are you looking for to determine whether there actually is progress being made between the U.S. and China here? On the trade issue? Yeah. Certainly a continuation of talks 
Right. I mean, that's really the number one factor. And right now, there's been no indication that they've set a date for the next round of talks. That's sort of number one. Number two, really movement on both sides. And the big issues on the table right now are, one, these ag purchases, and two, Huawei. So the U.S. has made, or Trump has made some comments about Huawei getting a slight reprieve, but we really haven't seen the details in that. And I think that's what China's kind of waiting for here, is something on that front to be able to move forward. Right. You know, for China, it's all about this win-win or freeze-freeze. And it's, you know, you got to give something to right. get something. And, they're not really fancy. Okay. Kelsey Broderick, thank you so much with Eurasia Group on Taiwan. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.